Before I jump into this message, just one more note. We've got a lot of things going on. So you've got the Acts of Mercy training happening in April. You've got Good Friday and Easter Sunday happening April 2nd, April 4th. April's a big month. Um, and then April 11th, we've got Baptism Sunday. All right? And so if you've never been here at Antioch for Baptism Sunday, you do not want to miss that weekend. So whatever trip you have planned, go and cancel it. And just stay here. It's not as good streaming. I just have to be honest. You can stream it, but it's better live because then you get wet. All right. So um, it's kind of like going to what's that place, San Antonio? Shamu? What? Sea yeah, it's like SeaWorld. You know, splash a little bit gets on you. So come to the front row. It's going to be fun. But no, we really do value the testimony uh, for people's lives. And so on Baptism Sunday, they get to share their testimony. And then those who are discipling them or family and friends get to be part of that baptism moment, which is so powerful, and we get to celebrate and pray over them. And so we're so excited about that. If you've not been water baptized and would like to be water baptized, if you just put your faith in Jesus this weekend, you're saying, man, I need to get baptized, then um, we'll provide that information. Come and talk to one of us as pastors. We'll send it out on the e-news as well so you can sign up for uh, the baptisms. All right. Well, this morning's going to be a little different, um, and it's going to be different because we're kicking off a series for these three weeks um, that is called Communion, Communion with Christ, and we're going to be talking about um, actual Lord's Supper Communion today, uh, and then uh, Billy's going to come and share kind of another aspect of, co- of communing with Christ, communing with the body next week, and then we'll wrap this series up on um, Easter Sunday out at the land. And just a note on the land, we're going to do our service at 10 a.m. And it's all family invited. Everyone's in. Invite friends. We want to pack that place out. We're going to have catered food. We'll tell you it's like five or seven bucks or something. So we've got lunch provided for you. We've got bounce houses. We've got an Easter egg hunt. We're going to have some other games. So it's kind of like, just think old school Baptist white church leave and every potluck, but we're not doing, we don't want your potluck. We're going to have catered food, <laughs> barbecue or fajitas. It's going to be delicious and it's going to be a party. So plan on coming from like 10 to one. So it's going to be a party. So it's going to be super fun. Rain or shine, we are doing Easter on the land. So if it's raining, just get a rain jacket and you'll be okay. All right. So please, but we really, we want this to be a really big event for our church. We, and in another way, we're kind of consecrating the land, the future land, the future church land uh, by celebrating Easter Sunday there. Uh, And so we want you to be there, make the effort. We'd love to see all of you guys there. All right. So today's going to be a little different. I'm going to be talking about the bread and the cup. We're talking about communion. And at the end of today's service, we're going to take communion together. And I just want to acknowledge in a room like this, um, you know, there's different backgrounds and different experiences with communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. Whether you come from a Protestant background or Catholic background or no, or, or no Christian background at all, no matter if you've been at Methodist or Baptist, or non-denominational, everyone kind of looks at it a little bit differently. But my hope this morning is to do a bit of a deep dive for us on the significance of it, and what is the deeper meaning, kind of pulling back a little bit into the Old Testament, pulling it forward to Jesus actually taking communion with his disciples the night before he actually was crucified. 
and the significance of it for today. Amen? So that's what we're doing. So um, it's, it's going to be a little wordy. I'm going to be reading a lot of details so I don't butcher it. Um, but I want you to track with me because I think in about 30 minutes, um, your mind's going to be a little blown about something that we have so easily overlooked. Okay? So here we go. Um, communion is known throughout church history as the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. And these two sacraments that we celebrate, which are baptism and communion, have been celebrated for years uh, throughout church history. But, but why? Right? Why does it matter? Um, why does it matter to celebrate the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper? And why did Jesus use this ceremony as a symbol of his death and new covenant with us? And when he did, why did he use bread and wine? He could have used anything, right? But since Jesus was eating the Passover meal, why didn't he use the meat as a symbol of his body, right? After all, it's the Lamb of God, not the loaf of God, right? <laughs> the meat maybe would have made a little bit more sense as a symbol. And why did the disciples think on that night when Jesus did all that? Like, what were they thinking? What did it mean to them, all right? So I'm going to try to deep dive in something that actually could probably have about an hour and a half or two hours to it. We've got 30 minutes, okay? So track with me. So let me give you a bit of the history. That's just a couple of questions to kind of provoke your thoughts a little bit. But let me give you the history of, of the cup and the bread. Exodus 12. In Exodus 12, it was instituted, right? Um, it was a male lamb. And it was in the prime of its life. It was meant to be perfect, without spot or wrinkle. God commanded the Jews when they were there in Egypt the night they were about to get away. And what he instructed them with this Passover lamb was it was to be examined for three days. It was then to be killed without breaking any bones. It was then to be completely roasted over a fire and all of it eaten. The blood of the lamb was to be put on the doorpost as a sign so the angel of judgment when he came that night in Egypt would pass over that house and that those people would live. So God started time over with the people of Israel with Passover. He actually told his people it was to be an event that marked the beginning of their year from then on. And so for 1,200 years after that, God's people marked time in their calendars, literally, by the Passover feast. Let's fast forward to the first century. Now Jesus, or now, now Jews were scattered everywhere. And those who could make it to Jerusalem at this time, when Rome um, occupied Jerusalem and that whole area, they would make it in from Africa and the Mediterranean world. And they couldn't haul a perfect land necessarily 500 miles or even 1,000 miles in a long journey. So what happened? Priests started a side business of raising Passover sheep, bred specifically for slaughter on Passover. So why did the angels appear to shepherds outside Jerusalem on that cold spring night to announce the birth of the Messiah? Possibly because those shepherds were watching over the Passover flock, like priests had done for 1,200 years. Sheep were brought through the sheep gate on Tuesdays. A male lamb in its prime perfect without spot or blemish, examined for three days, killed without breaking bones on Friday between 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. 
At 3 p.m., the sheep sacrifice, sacrificing stopped. The temple priest would climb the pinnacle tower of the Jerusalem temple, blow a shofar, and people would pause all across the city in silence. To do what? To confess their sins and remember God's forgiveness. Let's talk about Jesus. The perfect Lamb of God in his prime came into Jerusalem on a Tuesday. It went straight to the temple. He was examined, questioned, tested by religious leaders for three days. Found without fault, but condemned anyhow celebrated Passover with his disciples and told them to continue the tradition. Jesus was crucified, if you remember, at 9 a.m. on Friday, the same time as the sheep in the temple were crucified. His spirit left him at 3 p.m. when he gave out a cry. Now imagine when the temple priest blew the shofar at 3 p.m. on that Friday. Imagine it echoing off the walls of Jerusalem, and the city grew quiet for a brief moment. And in that moment of silence, a cry rings out from Golgotha saying, It is finished! In church history, the church celebrated the Eucharist daily at first. And then weekly. Many church fathers like Augustine or Tertullian and Justin Martyr mention how special this meal was for believers. Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wesley, and many others throughout the centuries often spoke about the frequency and the reverence they had for daily or weekly communion. So let's pause. Um, I want... But as we go forward, that's just a bit of a history. As we go forward, I want to try to answer three questions for us about communion. The first one is this. Why did Jesus use the bread and the wine as symbols, which we still use 2,000 years later? Question two. Why did these symbols mean, or what did these symbols mean to the disciples the night before Jesus died? And the third question I want to answer is why is communion important for us today, right? Every question we always ask about the Bible is why is it relevant today? So let's back up. Why did Jesus use bread and wine as symbols for his body and blood? Well, after God rescued Israel from their captivity in Egypt, he gave them a system of laws that were, were to govern their own society. Remember, they had been slaves for 400 years underneath the rule of the Egyptians. So they had no system of education, no system of governance, justice, health care, etc. So he gave them a code of conduct or a covenant, which we know as the Ten Commandments. And when he finished, he asked Moses and the elders of Israel to come up the mountain and seal the deal, to seal the covenant. Exodus chapter 24, verse 9 through 11. Then Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, And the 70 elders of Israel climbed up the mountain. There they saw the God of Israel, and they ate a covenant meal, eating and drinking in his presence. They ate a covenant meal when they sealed the deal on the Ten Commandments, which was the covenant God had made with them. So God sealed the deal with the meal. (laughs) They ate and drank in the presence of God. And God told them to celebrate the covenant with a covenant meal every week 
from that time forward in Leviticus 24. Afterwards, God commanded Moses to build a mobile church called a temple. And one of the articles he told Moses to put in the temple was a table with bread and wine. He called this table the bread of presence. God called this bread an offering and a sacrifice. So when the priest ate this meal every Sabbath day, every week, they weren't just remembering a meal on a mountain with God, although that'd be cool. They were to remember it as a sacrifice, as an offering. So follow this. You have Passover with the lamb, whose blood signified their redemption from slavery and the beginning of a new life. And you have the table of the presence, which has bread and wine on it, to be eaten and drunken every Sabbath, signifying God's covenant with them, which God calls a sacrifice and an offering. But wait, it gets even better. In Exodus 23, God commanded that three times every year, everyone had to come to the temple to present themselves before God. Everyone had to show up. But there's only one problem. God also said only priests could enter the temple. So how do you present yourselves before God whose presence is in the temple you can't go into? Well, the priests came up with a solution. They were commanded to appear before God but couldn't go into the temple. So Jewish tradition tells us that over time, the priest's solution to the problem was that three times a year when the nation gathered to present themselves before God... They would physically pick up the table of the presence with long poles so they didn't touch it. And they would carry it outside of the actual temple into the temple courts in front of all the people that were gathered there. And get this. They would lift up the bread and the wine on the table and they would shout in a loud voice, Behold God's love for you! As they're holding the bread and the wine. Jesus used bread and not meat on that first communion because the symbol of bread and wine is God's covenant, God's sacrifice, and God's offering was already burned into the minds of the disciples. They already knew what bread and wine together meant. They had been part of Jewish temple life since they were kids. They knew the significance of the bread and the wine, the symbols of God's love and his covenant. That was the significance of those symbols to the disciples that very night. And by the way, do you know that during the Passover meal, and this still goes on to this very day, the Father will take the three flat pieces of round bread out of a special cloth covering, and he'll break the middle piece and hide it. The meal will go until they come to the third Passover cup, which is called the cup of redemption, these cups of wine. And when the father picks up that glass of wine, the cup of redemption, he takes that broken loaf of bread back out. And yet to this day, there is no explanation for this in the Haggadah, which is the Jewish manual for Passover. They've been doing it for thousands of years and don't know why. Now, why do they hide this third piece of bread? Why do they break it? And why do they pull it out during the third cup? Before Jesus was ever born, God gave his people a symbol of himself. Three and one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
and the son was the one who was broken. So when Jesus picked up the bread that night and broke it and gave it to them, he did what every father and every rabbi had been doing for over 1,200 years. And yet no one ever knew the significance of that ritual. It was just done according to custom. But only on this night, Jesus interpreted that symbol. Luke 22, verse 19 and 20. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it. And gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for you. You see, for all those years, they never knew why the middle piece of bread was broken and hidden, but not the others. Jesus cleared it up for them. It represented him. When he gave it to them, he also gave them the cup of redemption to drink from. The disciples already understood the symbol of a covenant meal to mark God's covenant with his people. They knew that the table of presence in the temple represented this. But there's a second meaning to the cup which you would never know unless you knew Jewish history. There was no such thing as dating in Jewish culture. Right? Eli didn't just see Rachel at the market and ask her out for a date of hummus and goat's milk. Couples didn't date back then. The culture didn't work that way. Instead, it was the father who actually chose a bride for his son. Remember when Rebecca was minding her own business and Abraham's commissioned servant showed up and chose her to be his son's bride? Isaac didn't choose Rebecca. His dad was the one who worked out the deal. She said yes to being chosen without ever having seen Isaac's face. I know that freaks out half of you in this room. That's the way it was. So Peter spoke of Jesus this way in 1 Peter 1.8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Do you see it? A bride excited about her wedding day, about her groom. And here we see, we don't see him, but there's an inexpressible joy. You see, the groom and his father would go to the bride's family house to propose the marriage once he selected out the young lady. And they would come up with gifts and money and, yes, a contract. This contract was legally binding in Jewish culture. If she signed it, the marriage was a done deal that night. The contract stated that the groom would provide for all the needs of the bride. That he would be her covering and protection. That was the marriage contract. Money exchanged hands too. And a price had to be agreed upon. And that price had to be paid in full in order for that groom to purchase his bride. Every prospective groom knew that he would have to sacrifice for the bride. It would be a high price because the amount he was willing to pay would reflect his love and value 
for the bride. The groom and the father also brought one other item to every marriage proposal, a chalice of wine. Once the bride and her family looked over the gifts, the money, and the contract, they would decide whether or not they accepted. If the bride accepted, she would symbolize her acceptance of the groom by reaching across the table and picking up that chalice of wine and drinking it. By drinking the wine, she was saying, I accept the terms of your contract. I accept the price you are paying for me. And I receive you as my groom. You see, once the bride drank the cup, the father of the bride would turn to his son and ask him if he was willing to drink from that cup too. And as a symbol of his willingness to pay the price and keep the terms of the marriage contract and be faithful, that's what he would do. So when Jesus was in the garden praying, do you remember what he said in Matthew 26, 39? Father, if it be possible... Let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. On the cross, as Jesus was dying, he said to the Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He had fulfilled the bridal price. It is finished. Now let's go back to the bride and groom story for a moment. After both the bride and the groom drank the wine from the cup... The groom and his father would leave to go prepare a place for her to live with him. The groom did the work, not the father. In the Middle East, families, in, in, in the Middle East, families lived together. So his son would get married, but instead of moving down the street or to another town, he would bring his bride home to his father's house, where he would build an additional room. This is still the custom in the Middle East today. Right after taking communion with his disciples, Jesus said in John 14, 2, My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? See, the groom would go to get the house ready to receive the bride. He paid a high price for her, so there was never any doubt that he would come back. Of course he would come back. Jesus continued on in chapter in John 14, 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. So when the son had done a good enough job, it was the father who decided if the house was ready. And if the son could go get his bride, the timing was not up to the son, but up to the father. In Acts 1, 7, the disciples asked Jesus if now is the time he would restore the kingdom. Jesus answered like a bridegroom would. He said, it is not for you to know the times or dates. The Father has set by his own authority. Do you see it? While the groom was gone making preparations for the bride, the bride waited expectantly. She never knew when the groom would show back up to get her and take her to be with himself. But there was a custom in place that would give her fair warning. You see, when the groom's day came and he started for her house, a cry would go up in the town that the groom was coming for his bride. 
1 Thessalonians 4.16, Paul says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together. And then, and them in the clouds, with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Jesus is coming back for his church, for his bride. Why? He paid way too high of a price not to. Now, if you're like me, your mind's a little blown right now. <laughs> you're thinking, wow, I had no idea the symbolism of that night of taking the bread and the cup. You see, God had given the Jews rituals and festivals for 1,200 years that unknown to them pointed to him as the Messiah, pointed to his sacrifice for them and for the world. He paid a high price, and the story had been written into the history for generations. So if you've just gone through a monumental paradigm shift about Christ and the church, the bread, and the cup, that's okay. Because I never knew um, why so many church fathers and revivalists and healing evangelists committed to the communion being such a consistent practice in their life until doing more and more research. Um, you see, when you look through the eyes of history, you realize the significance and the reverence that many in the church have had for the bread and the cup. So why should we love and anticipate taking the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, the communion together? Why is it important in the life of the church? Well, there's several reasons, and I'll take a few minutes just to wrap up with three basic reasons before we end. I can go and invite the band on up and our team to get communion ready. Um, the main three reasons why it matters for us as a church today is, number one, Jesus encouraged us to do it in remembrance of him. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. You see, as he was passing the bread and the cup, he told his disciples that as often as they celebrated this meal, this Passover meal, to do it in remembrance of him. And so we are encouraged to celebrate communion from Jesus. A second reason is not just he's encouraged us to do it to remember him, but it's because taking the Lord's Supper regularly keeps our lives examined and clean before God. You see, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven and 28, Paul writes, So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. In other words, communion should force us to do a little soul searching. To determine if we have unconfessed sin, bitterness, things going on in our lives. Someone we need to apologize to, I don't know. But that we get our hearts clean 
and our minds clean before God. Not taking account of ourselves is to eat and drink judgment on us because we are flaunting the terms of the contract we agreed to with Jesus. The third reason why communion is significant is because rightly viewed and observed, communion infuses us with power physically and spiritually. Did you know that for the first 1,400 years of the church, everyone believed that taking the Eucharist brought us in touch with God in a way that helped us grow spiritually, helped us stay even healthy. Remember that curious phrase that Paul uses when he's encouraging the Corinthians to be careful how they take communion? He says, For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep or died. Now, I don't know everyone's motivations, thought process behind communion over the years. I know growing up, it wasn't a big deal in our family. But when you start to dig on anything, and when you start to look at the history of our brothers and sisters in Christ have gone before us. And when you start to really look at the significance of the words of Jesus and how he said things and the time in which he said them, and you really start giving yourselves over to that and move away all the other stuff and say, I just want what you have, you begin to realize there are specific scriptures and things that are so significant that we may overlook. And even for us guys at church, 11 years in, I've had different journeys and conviction levels with communion. And it was several years ago when the Lord really convicted me that I didn't take it seriously. And so at that time, we started putting bread and cups or little juice things in the back. We didn't really know how to approach it. And I just said, I want it there every single Sunday. And many of you just walk by it because we don't mention it a whole lot. And that's on us. But most Sundays, I would go back there at some point and just take communion by myself. A few others would do that as well. And recently, we started talking and realizing, you know what? This is a significant sacrament that Jesus instituted. And who are we to not follow through with what he's commanded us to do? See, it wasn't just an encouragement. He said, do this in remembrance of me. I want you to remember me. And for those reasons, remembering Jesus, keeping our hearts clean before God, and that there is power in it. I don't have time to share all the stories, but I know of a handful of people who, are, who have been healed from ailments, diseases, and handicaps as they took communion. I know of some people who have had encounters with God during communion, even myself. And many people don't have the proper perspective of this sacrament because they throw it out as some religious thing or something their grandparents did or whatever. And I'm not saying every time you take communion that you're going to have some open vision or that your knee's going to get healed. <laughs> what I'm saying is that there is something significant that God's wanting to get at with us. That when we start taking his words with a little more seriousness, a little more reverence, there is power in that place. I mean, 
the, the more serious you take Jesus, I don't think that's a negative. <laughs> he wants us to be joyful. I think he was the most joyful person to ever live. But he was also so committed to his father's business. He was so missional. And he was reverent. And he taught his disciples how to do things his way. So here's how we're going to end this morning. I thought it would be fitting for us to actually take communion together. One thing I didn't mention about communion, and um, we weren't able to, to get it this time, but, you know, with the bread, um, what's significant is that the way that they actually made bread back then was they had this unleavened bread, and they would, they would cook it. And many times on kind of like an open grill as they heated it with the coals or the wood. And as they baked this bread, the bread actually had stripes on it from the markings. Like when you cook a steak, it had stripes on the bread. And as the heat's coming through the bread, it would actually pierce through these little air bubbles. It would pierce through the bread. And so for thousands of years, when Jews would take the Passover meal and they would eat this, they would literally be taking that bread one of those three pieces would tearing it apart. But that bread actually had stripes on it. The bread actually had piercings through it. The whole time, they're literally taking this bread. And so when the disciples took the bread, he said, broken is remembrance of me. What they didn't know is that the next day, he was going to be whipped and lashed with stripes upon his back. What they didn't know is that he was literally going to be pierced in his side pierced through for your transgressions. So do you see the significance? When you take the bread, it's like the symbolism is right there. Jesus was beaten on my behalf. He was pierced through for me. So when he says, take this bread as my body, he's literally saying, this is the symbolism for what I did for you. So when we take of this, I know you just take a little piece. You're not eating the whole loaf. But when you take a piece... I want you to think, man, by his stripes we are healed. He was pierced through for my transgressions. And as we take it, we're just in a moment going to have you come up and just grab it, go back to your seats. But as you take it, I, before you take of the bread, and before you take of the cup, remember that cup is the cup of the covenant. It's, the, it's this contract. It's this covenant remembering what Jesus has done for you and your commitment to him as a faithful follower of Christ. That's why we ask for people who have not put their faith and trust in Jesus to not take communion. It's only for those that have said, no, I trust in Jesus. Because it's remembrance of that covenant, that contract. But as you do it, before you take it, take a moment and examine yourself. We probably all got something from this last week, I'm sure. <laughs> Lord, I need to repent for that. Oh, Lord, I'm sorry for that. Just come with a clean heart as you take it this morning. So the band's just going to play, just kind of instrumentally, mainly, just to give us space. But I want you to reflect on what Christ has done. As we go into this Easter season, we wanted to start with the significance of what Christ has done for us. Amen. So you can go ahead and get up. I think we've got some teams of people going to be passing out the bread. Maybe, maybe not. We're, not. we're not doing that. Who knows? Okay, great. You can hop up and you can just grab... Um, on here as well, what we chose to do today, because I explained the significance of the wine, as well as there's juice and wine available at each station, so you're welcome to take whatever you feel comfortable taking. It's not a big deal, um, but we chose to, to provide the wine as well, since that is what um, Jesus took that night. So wine and juice available. 
You can take a piece of bread, head back to your seats, and then take it with, if you're married, with your spouse, or take it with your friends or by yourself, but just examine your heart, and then just connect with the Lord in this way.